Welcome to the Political Animals podcast about politics, culture and ideas from a conservative perspective. I'm Simon Kennedy, lecturer in intellectual history at Christian Heritage College and a research fellow at the University of Queensland. I'm joined as always by my podcast partner in crime, Jonathan Cole, who is assistant director at the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University based down in Canberra. Jonathan, good to speak with you today. I'm looking forward to another stimulating chat. As am I, Simon. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing the hot political topic of Christians supporting the angry red man in the White House, Donald Trump. Uh, This has been a hot topic since the 2016 US presidential election. It remains a hot topic of conversation and of analysis for pundits and scholars interested in religious voters and in the intersection between religious belief, religious ideas and politics. This is there's an op-ed published earlier uh, this week as we record by Greg Sheridan in the Australian newspaper on October 18. It's indicative of this interest around the topic. Sheridan stated that Trump will win. It looks very likely to win a majority of votes in the church-going Catholic demographic. He's going to looks to win a majority of votes from the Orthodox Jewish demographic, interestingly, and he's a certainty, pretty much a certainty to do what basically every Republican candidate has done in recent decades, and that's to win the majority of evangelicals as well. But the question with Trump is, why is this uh, the case that he has this sort of overwhelming support from evangelical Christians? Uh, Well, this is something we're going to discuss in this episode, but Sheridan points out that practicing Christians support Trump because he takes policy positions which they appreciate, including appointing conservative Supreme Court justices, which he has done almost three times now. He's done it twice. He's going to do it a third time, it looks like. Uh, He's pro-life and his medical policies. He's pro-religious freedom, both domestically and abroad. Uh, Jonathan, Sheridan's article shows there's still a real fascination with this question of evangelical Christians supporting Trump. What do you think's going on here? Simon, I think there's a lot going on here, although it is a very complex phenomenon. But I think it might be wise for us to just set up a little bit of groundwork before we start treading in this minefield and uh, as listeners may have picked up by now and if they hadn't or if they haven't I'm going to break the news that we are actually not American. Um, Shocking. Shocking. Accents are probably a good tell there but um, one can never be too sure and so whilst we are obviously outsiders we're not constituents we have no Mm. right to vote in America we're not Republicans. Mm. So in some ways, what we think of Trump is kind of moot. Uh, We are, of course, very keen observers of American politics, particularly the drama that is American politics uh, right now. But having said that, we're not entirely outsiders, are we? Because we are going to focus in today on the question, particularly of evangelical Christian support for Donald Trump and both of us are Christians, and we happen to have a somewhat intimate relationship with this particular yeah. brand of Christianity, albeit in the Australian context, which is evangelicalism. So I think it might be helpful for listeners if we just situate ourselves ecclesially and theologically so that we can yeah, sure. uh, show uh, how the, the position from which we are attacking this problem. And then I actually mm. propose to inject ourselves into this discussion. We are 
as uh, academics, <laughs> probably <laughs> anyone who's anyone who's still with us is probably patently aware we have a predilection for the abstract, the definitional, the conceptual. I mean, yeah. we, we pretty well exegeted a philosophical essay last episode. Yeah. I think we might, <laughs> apart from right. injecting a little bit of biography, um, yeah. we won't do too much. I think it'll be good to inject ourselves in and kind of um, add a subjective element. And so what I propose to do is for each of us, as it were, to lay our cards on the table. And although it's entirely hypothetical, yeah. how about yeah. we each say how we think we might have voted Mm. in the 2016 election and how we might be likely to vote in the 2020 election that's just around the corner. And then I think we can prod and probe each other. Mm. We'll keep it PG, but a bit of prodding and probing. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, everything's metaphorical. It's a podcast. <laughs> um, boy, if we were on YouTube and prodding and probing, it would, would be a different kind of show. But Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, it's true. I think, uh, see, this is what happens when you start talking about Donald Trump. You become <laughs> immature and uh, it's true. silly. So we'll, we'll we'll try and keep this uh, <laughs> as sober and yeah. serious as one, oh, yeah, of course. one of course. can when discussing uh, the very serious and sober personality that occupies the White House at the moment. And so we'll, we'll have a bit of a, maybe a bit of a debate because we obviously know the answer to these questions, but our listeners don't yet. And mm. there, there may be a, a point of difference here. We'll find out shortly. And I think it, we just need to be clear that because we know the evangelical world best within the context of the Christian world, and neither of us are really plugged into the Catholic landscape in the US with uh, genuine respect to our Catholic listeners, we're not going to dive into what we don't know very well and try and preach to people who probably know it a lot better enough so we will focus exclusively on the evangelical part of this story of persistent and intense religious support for donald trump and Mm. i'll just say to the atheists and agnostics listening to us an apology at the outset but also a welcome to the weird and strange world of evangelical christianity (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. you got a bit of an education tonight that's good it's good oh look look I've been in it 44 years and it's still bewildering. <laughs> the, um, That's true. So, Simon, uh, how about you show me yours and then I'll show you mine. Yeah, sure. Speaking. So, yeah, tell, I, tell me about I, your connection to the evangelical. Yeah, world. okay. So, I, well, tell our I grew up. More to the point. Of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I grew up uh, in the evangelical wing of the Anglican Church here in Australia. Uh, so, down in Victoria. Uh, and and grew up um in this evangelical wing and that, and that's and that's um and so that's a, a con- sort of the theologically conservative uh part of the anglican church it's a very varied landscape the church the anglican church if anyone's vaguely familiar with it and um i had across my years i've attended uh pentecostal churches baptist churches and i find myself now a very content and uh, comfortable Presbyterian. And so I would probably be regarded by most people looking in on the out, from the outside as still as an evangelical in the sense that, the, uh, say, theologically and ecclesiologically and within the Australian landscape, Presbyterianism would be considered evangelical. But I, I have 
discomfort with the label, partly because of the cultural, uh, the socio-cultural and socio-political uh, uh, attachments to the label, I guess. Um, I'm evangelical in the sense that I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to Christianity and that the Bible is the word of God and so on. So, I mean, I, my, my beliefs would be consistent with it, but I don't necessarily identify myself as evangelical very strongly anymore. Uh, I identify as a, a confessional Presbyterian, um, but of course, confessional Presbyterians can be evangelicals. So, uh, it's perhaps a moot point. It's perhaps a moot point in one in one in one sense. But a I distinction guess I'm without saying, a definition, I think, is the. Oh the yeah, <laughs> that's probably what it is. And I guess I'm just saying that um, I'm uncomfortable with with evangelicalism, but I'm st- I probably still am in that camp to anyone looking in from the outside. Uh, so that that would be where I fit in in terms of my my. Uh, sort of church, church identity, uh, my ecclesial identity, to use uh, technical language, and I mean, do do we do we want to do do we, do we want me to throw to you, do I throw to you now, Jonathan? Do you want to explain your background, or should I talk? Do I have to talk about what I would have done in the twenty sixteen election? I, I you know, I'm, of course I will, but you know, it's a it's a, it's actually kind of an awkward question because anything you say about Trump is uh, is a hot a hot potato, right? Um, oh, absolutely, and and, I, and you you absolutely are going to be forced to do this, but um, yes. you're going to have a little time right now to wipe the sweat off your brow <laughs> and change your t-shirt because I know how I, I can sense sense the palpable anxiety in your oh I'm your just voice uh, there. So let me petrified, petrified. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if you don't want to be on the record, you shouldn't um, host a podcast. Just make as a podcast. A, as a, there's a little insight right there. The, um, the one you you have a similar you actually have a kind of a similar uh, ecclesial background in some ways. Uh, it is it it is it is certainly it has a similar origin story. But um, for those who know the intricacies of Anglicanism, which is where I start too, and for those who know nothing but are already finding it a strange and wonderful world, I actually grew up in <laughs> the real evangelical wing of the. Yeah. Anglican Church, which is Sydney, not the pretend ones down south. That's not exactly the, not right. those liberals down in um, yeah <laughs> Melbourne. So true, so true. Uh, although, although interestingly, as you know, I I, I began in Sydney, but uh, ended up in Canberra via a ten year stint stint in Melbourne. But my my family was really involved in Sydney, well, initially Sydney evangelicalism, but Anglican evangelicalism in Australia. Um, my father was a student at Moore College when I was born, spent the first year of my life in Newtown in the 70s, ended up on the faculty of Moore College, who's an ordained Anglican minister, as they are in You Sydney. could say, actually, Jonathan, you could say that you are part of Australian Anglican royalty, I think. But that's well, another. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. I won't go quite that far. And I, and I kind of... I'm hesitant to say too much because obviously we're going into contentious waters and yeah, I don't want course. anyone to be under any misapprehension that my family or father necessarily share or endorse my mm. views. But it does it does establish, if you like, my evangelical credentials to the extent that that kind of thing is important. But in any case, when I was 15, my father became the principal of Ridley College, which is the main Anglican evangelical 
theological college down in Melbourne. So I then spent 10 years going to evangelical Anglican churches in Melbourne with uh, liberals like Simon, although we, we, we never crossed, <laughs> crossed paths. No, we didn't. We in, didn't. Yeah. In Melbourne, but uh, I, was, I was involved in Christian Union. I had a conversion experience actually when I was about 18 at La Trobe University hmm. of all places that bastion of evangelical yeah. Christianity. And I, <laughs> uh, but then like you, I've stayed in the Anglican church, but I have, uh, I would say the way I would describe me theologically. So ecclesially, I guess I'm still an Anglican, but uh, theologically I am evangelically formed and I'm grateful for that formation, but I don't describe mm. myself as an evangelical and my theological horizons have expanded. I got very interested in Orthodox Christianity and Catholicism. I've got a very ecumenical perspective, as I don't need to tell you, Simon. Uh, mm. My wife is Greek Orthodox, so got into Orthodox theology big time, do some scholarship on it. And I, I currently go to what would be described as an Anglo-Catholic church because... It's very difficult to explain. It's probably more information than anyone wants. But I, I'm ecclesially very conservative. I like the Anglican liturgy. I like the pomp and ceremony, the church calendar, because I, I find mm. it incredibly mm. countercultural. My yeah, issue yeah. with the issue with kind of evangelical Christianity is often you go into the church and there's there's nothing that says you're not in the culture of the secular world outside. That might sound strange, but I mean, the music's kind of secular music. It's just about how much you love Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Everyone mm, dresses mm. the same as they do outside. You've got a hipster minister giving, talking the language. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of, yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, of today, often the building can look really modern. Uh, so I, I actually like to be transported into a totally different universe i just find it easier to contemplate god in that perspective but i i would yeah. be theologically far more conservative than your average anglo-catholic there's there's no doubt about that and so for me i kind of straddle i'm a i'm a, I'm a bit idiosyncratic partly because i'm weird but uh <laughs> i guess evangelicals uh non-evangelicals tell me i walk talk and sound like an evangelical and I'm, I'm not embarrassed by that appellation even if I don't embrace the term because I, I, I have not repudiated my evangelical formation that's stood me in good stead I think good bible-based uh, theological foundation uh, but I can tend to make hardcore dogmatic evangelicals quite nervous with my yeah. adventurous theology right right, right. yeah ecumenism <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Depending on the uh, perspective, and of course, well, not of course, as if as if I could say, of course, as I'm speaking to people that know me inside out. But my parents, to cut a long story short, ended up in America, and my father's quite a prominent uh, evangelical theologian over there. I hesitate to say any more. He's, he's not a big wig in the political scene, but in the genuinely theological side of evangelicalism and through that connection and through a lot of my own connections i i know quite a few american evangelicals i've i've worked with and been involved with them i've been to the u.s many times 
partly for work, but partly for pleasure. And so I have a little window. It's only a little window. I'm not an expert, but I have a little window through personal connections into the evangelical world in mm. the US. So that's probably uh, more than we set out to do on. on oh no, that. that's really helpful. That's really helpful. And I think there are some commonalities between you and I. We just, you know, just to close this off, I, I, we probably have similar discomfort with uh, evangelical subculture and and our, you know. Our ecclesial decisions kind of reflect that to an extent, um, and no, I mean it's 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 all it's all helpful. I I don't have a personal connection necessarily to North American evangelicalism, but I have friends who, you know, who I'm who I'm in contact with who are part of that. I have some awareness of the scene and so on. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, for, for anyone listening in America, Australian evangelicalism is different to American evangelicalism, yeah. and there are nuances there. So that's um, a distinct beast. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, but, but a subspecies—it's it, a subspecies of the same species. There's a oh, that's right. That's uh, right. Australian evangelicals would feel like they're part broadly of the same family, if you like, and there are often a lot of connections. A lot of Australians go over, and a lot of evangelical yeah. Australians go over and, and study theology in American evangelical seminaries, and there, there's a lot of common theological. Yeah, there is. Positions. There is, and. And like you, Jonathan, I am deeply grateful for my evangelical heritage and for my um, my formation. And so my very uh, <laughs> my very unpersuasive repudiation of the of the of the label is is not a, is a is partly due to that that I, I still kind of identify with it to an extent. But the um the, the question, I guess, the next question is the big one, right? What would we have done in twenty sixteen? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to. I'm happy to go first on that. So I'm happy for you to go first as well. Yeah, yeah. So if, if, uh, so I, it's a, it's a, it's a counterfactual. Uh, it's a hypothet- pure hypothetical, of course. And I mean, if I was a, an evangelical in North America in 2016, and I had the, uh, and I was looking at my my two options, uh, at least my two main options, because there is also the, there's often the third party option there, but. My two main options, and I was looking at Hillary Clinton, who stands for a lot of things that I am uncomfortable with or flat out disagree with. And I turn to the other side, and I see a person who is, who is actually, you know, he's a kind of he's a repulsive. He's personally repulsive in some ways. Uh, he is uh, he has lived a life which is not one that I find admirable. He doesn't treat people very well it seems to me from what i can tell he's probably not someone that i would like <laughs> if i knew him personally uh and i say that without actually knowing donald trump of course i don't know donald trump but i but i look at him and i think oh, he's not really an attractive person but then i look at I, w- I would have looked at his policies hypothetically i would have looked at his policies and i would have said well you know he he does at a policy level he does rep- he does represent some things and he he, he projects an image and he projects ideas, policy ideas, into the debate, which are things that I am, I am, I am in favour of. Um, and so, what I would have done, I guess, is I, I'm, I can, I guess, I can understand, I can understand conservatives holding their nose and voting for Trump in 2016. Uh, I can understand that decision, and I think that. I can also understand that decision in 2020. So that'd be my my answer. However, there are third party options, um, 
which were floating around, one of them being the Libertarian Party, which I don't think I would have found myself voting for. But there were other possibilities on the ticket and I can also imagine voting for one of those other possibilities partly as a protest vote. Uh, and I've done, you know, done this kind of thing in Australian elections as well where I actually often don't vote for the major parties because of, you know, a, a bit of a, uh, you know, I guess I, a part, partly for just some reasons that I, I sometimes it's nice to vote for someone else other than the major parties to um, put a bit of variation in the in the conversation. But um, that, that I can imagine going third party too in 2016 and I can po- probably imagine going third party in 2020 as well. But I can I can certainly understand conservatives holding their nose and voting Trump. Let's put it that way. Could you have, do you understand it enough to have made a vote like that, do you think? Could you yeah, have held, inter- held your nose and uh, tick the box or the hanging tag or whatever it is they do over there? Yeah, I think I could have. I think I could have done it. Yes. And let me ask you this, Simon. Would because there there are kind of degrees to holding the nose. Just to get all technical about the nose holding. I mean, would yeah, you sure. would you have kind of fasted for a month before and self-flagellated the night before and kind of spent all night vigils praying? Yeah, gone right. in, put the peg on the nose, mm, come out, mm. uh, don the sackcloth and, and wail. <laughs> or would it have been more of just put a peg on the nose, walk in, tick the box, come out, throw the peg in the bing and get on with your life? Like, Yeah, yeah. Like how I just, I'm just i just thinking of a, a sense of, uh, and I mean, I stress, you know, this is hypothetical, so um, <laughs> I'm yeah, inviting exactly. people to hold you. To this, or make judge yeah. judgments, but I'm just I yeah. want to get a sense of how hard it would have, or easy it, it would have been. Because I mean, you can think mm. you can think to yourself, "Well, look, I just this guy, this this is terrible," but it, it might not weigh on your conscience, or it could it could really be a, a gut wrenching kind of sure. decision, you know? Yeah, no, I w- it wouldn't it wouldn't. No, I I am. Uh... I am not. I would not have been in the uh, the former camp, which is the self flagellation and sackcloth and ashes and just would have, would so on. Have I would have just put the peg the on the nose, walked in. Yeah, yeah. Put the peg on the nose, walk in, vote, walk out, and get on with it. Yep. And uh, and I would still, I would still say that's a you know that's probably uh, that's that's a, this is all with hindsight, right? Like we know, mm-hmm. we know. Actually, this is the tricky. This is one tricky thing about this conversation is, is that we it? actually <laughs> we didn't know. What Trump was going to do yeah. in 2016, and what he was going to be like as a president. So we're sort of we're talking in hindsight. And- well, I think I think really this is there's a distinction here because I think we have to assume we knew what everyone, every American walking into the voting booth in 2016 knew, which was yeah, right. not a lot, just what we, what they knew from the campaign and the primary. And I think it is a substantively different proposition now because Trump is the incumbent, obviously, and you can you can weigh up his record against a potential you have to kind of particularly with biden you really do have to guess what he's going to do because he's he's been pretty scanty on detail let's let's face it and pretty evasive on some on um some matters but let me let me um you know yeah yeah what would you what would you have done what would you what would you have done i mean would you have would you have voted for for the el el trumpo or would you have uh (laughs) Have you know voted for Hillary, or what would you have done? 
Uh, I, I definitely wouldn't have, wouldn't have voted for Hillary. I'm in that camp of people who found her. Um, I just found there was something repellent about her, uh, whether it's her policies or her long and uh, semi-corrupt career in establishment politics. Uh, I didn't get good vibes from her. I'm certainly not in the hysterical camp that thought she would have um, single-handedly destroyed the American Republic within four years. No, yeah, but, that's right. That's I, mean, right. I think that kind of position is uh, grossly overblown. But I don't, I, I don't think she would have been. I think she would have been on the whole detrimental to America. It's not to say she couldn't have done some good. Let's face it. All politicians yeah. are, are a mix, have a mixed record. At the end Absolutely, of the day. that's right. So we're comparing mixed records. But I, I do, I do think I don't. I, I, if I put my evangelical or just general Christian hat on, I. I think based on her record and her rhetoric, I would feel confident in saying she probably wouldn't have been particularly good for evangelicals, let's face it. Yeah. But again, how bad would she have been? I don't know. We'd have to get into that. But like you, I find I find zero to admire in Trump's personal life. I mean, I think he's pretty much a fraud. I mean, even his, yeah. his business career is really a crock of proverbial when you look at yeah the, absolutely that's what it seems detail. to be uh, and yeah. particularly with the tax record revelations I'm not sure you would say he's the greatest or most successful uh businessman obviously he's not a an e- exemplar of evangelical living or lifestyle so there's a, a discord discordance there something that makes me uneasy. I do think character is important. It's not everything, but it's certainly not nothing either. No, but it does matter, and that's that's why this is a com- this was a complicated question. For, Absolutely. For, yeah, and that's why it's a complicated question for me as you asked me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, but it's, I, yeah, so I agree I with do, you. I do think the US system needed a bit of disruption, but I, I, I think what I would have done is I don't think I could have voted for him, actually. I think I probably would have stayed home, to be honest. Yeah, right. In um, 2016. And in 2020, I, I'm i not so sure because I think he has done some good. I like his foreign policy. I actually think building a wall was a good, good idea. It's a unpopular mm. view in some... Christian circles, but I always thought a wall would be effective. Okay, there's there's contention around how much of the wall he's built, which apparently goes to his ability to fulfil the promise. But some wall has been built and is being built. It's a wall is effective <laughs> if done, yeah. done well. And yeah, I think, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it works. I think there was yeah. a real problem there that he he was addressing. But I, I've got to say. Having seen him in action for four years, I do think he's fundamentally incompetent, uh, which is to say I think mm. he, politically incompetent. I think he lacks the fundamental competence. He's not a good leader of people. I mean, he just he loses all the best people he gets around him because they <laughs> yeah. sooner or later just can't work with the man, which is not a good testament to his leadership style or ability. I think he's... Political rhetoric, whilst I'm sure it's kind of cathartic for certain people who 
uh, get off on the the liberal conservative or progressive conservative combat in you in the US. Um, I'm not sure on the whole it's helpful. I think it overall degrades the office of president, and I think it contributes yeah. ultimately in the wash up in a negative way to the political culture of the US. Now, of course, you right, can say, right. well, he's he's not single handedly responsible for that. He's come into a den of vipers, but it's kind of like saying, you know, it's, it's like if you go to a guy who's just massacred a hundred people and his defense is, well, they were already shooting when I got here. I mean, you know, yeah. just because I, I killed 80% of the people. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not exactly yeah. that, that rhetoric doesn't exactly contribute to ameliorating mm-hmm. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the civility deficit in American politics. I mean, at the end of the day, He's not exactly a statesman. And I think he's mishandled a lot of issue, issues. I, I, I mean, obviously, he's not responsible for, for COVID in any way, shape, or form. And he, he did have some economic success, success uh, prior to that. And you can't really argue with the, the stats there, I don't think. But he, I think parts of the COVID response have clearly been bungled that's not to say that hillary would have done a sort of exponentially better job or some other democratic president but uh, i could imagine that an obama and yeah. i don't agree with a lot of obama's politics but the, the guy had the kind of core competencies i'm um contending that trump lacks and so i think at the sort of organizational rhetorical sort of efficacy level leadership level he probably on balance may have had a more adept and astute response having said that i think the outcome would have still been pretty devastating no matter what yeah that's all a long way of saying i i would find it a tougher proposition voting the second time i would have been reassured that the world hadn't collapsed because i mean i don't buy (laughs) this nonsense that the global order is about you know the end of the earth is is nigh if trump wins a second office i mean that stuff's as overblown as the idea that hillary was the devil incarnate i mean we're just dealing with histrionic political rhetoric here on both sides in the us which is what you get in a hyper polarized political environment so He's managed to do some good. I think a lot of that is actually due to the people around him. It's not like he single-handedly picked the Supreme Court nominations. He was given a list by the Federalist Society society or whatever it was, and his advisors would have pushed him towards the top couple of candidates. I mean, the idea that Trump's sitting there going, "Mm, yes, I really like Coney Barrett's originalist position on the Roe versus Wade, Wade case. I mean, he's... (laughs) <laughs> but but, no. but it is still a kind of political astuteness to to know that he needs to pick a conservative supreme justice that can a get nominated it's going to be um supported by certain constituencies so i'm not not suggesting he's a he's a blathering idiot or anything but the point is it, it's we, we've got to remember he's not in there single-handedly making every Good job. No, he's got a team. He's got a team around him, and there's obviously Definitely. there obviously are some smart, competent people in his team. I think that's clear, and because it, not everything's gone as it would have if it mm-hmm. was just Trump at the wheel, there are other people at the wheel as well. 
I, I did the interesting thing about this. I'm listening to you talk, and I basically agree. I basically agree with most of the your analysis, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the cho- the choice in the polling booth mm-hmm. that seems to. Well, it's not just. It won't, it won't be just the choice in the polling booth, but it, it feels like that so far. That that uh, so you see, my my analysis of Trump is similar. Although I I, I guess I where would I differ? I think. I think it's impossible to know what someone else would have done with COVID-19 and it's almost impossible to tell exactly what impact Trump's had on the COVID response. Mm-hmm. I think he definitely I agree with you that his rhetoric is his rhetorical approach is unhelpful. He's clearly shooting from the hip more often than is uh wise for someone who is the president of the United States when he's um fronting the media and so on and I think that this kind of thing causes confusion and noise and unpalatable outcomes but you know i i also think you like with like you that he has done a lot of good interestingly a lot of the good as you've already pointed out is oh i wouldn't say a lot of policy good, just to be clear, oh yeah I would say sure. s- some good but some good and i would actually agree sorry so i misspoke because it's some good but, <laughs> it's, but um, on this topic Simon. no no thank you thank you for the <laughs> clarification um but the some good that he's done is often in foreign, the foreign policy space. Uh, he's supported things like religious freedom internationally, which I think mm-hmm. is a good thing. Yep. Um, seems to have had an impact there. He's he's had some real wins in in uh, the Middle East. Interestingly, yeah, he's had some right, yeah. he, like like massive wins, which got total almost ignored by the mainstream media. Uh, not 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 actually, but almost. Um, and he had some interesting wins with North Korea along the way as well. Uh, that that hasn't exactly gone anywhere in particular, but there were some uh, interesting things happening there. So I don't know whether that's to do with this foreign policy team or whether you know I don't, who who, know, who knows what's who knows what's going on behind the scenes exactly. But I think you're right that he just displays a lot of unpalatable character traits, and clearly, like he, he's had some he's had some seems to have had some good people around him who do yeah who do tend to leave fairly quickly. So it's it's a confusing thing because. You know, I'm a I'm a political realist at the end of the day. I don't think that anyone's particularly is I don't think anyone is particularly good, nor are they the devil incarnate. And I don't think that everyone that people are particularly competent either. Like no one is uber competent. Everyone has flaws and and so on. And I think that as whenever you vote, every everyone, everyone votes who votes uh, in part pragmatically. And those who go in thinking that, you know, like there was probably a lot of excitement around Obama in the first election that he was running um, in 2008 and there was a sort of messianic vibe around him. Um, <laughs> I just think even I just think even the voters who kind of thought he was this, uh, he was this really amazing messiah figure are kind of just fooling themselves. At the end of the day, I mean, these, these are just normal people who are running for the top this this top office this top political office and there's actually only so much we can expect from them both as people and as political actors and leaders we're not going to get a good deal a really perfect deal whatever we whatever we choose I, I I just think it's a flawed it's a flawed world with flawed processes and you know at the end of the day Trump Trump was he strikes me as a slightly less problematic 
choice than the other the other the other people on the ticket. Uh, it's it's just a, it's just a weird it's a weird and you know, uncomfortable Simon, I, situation. I it's a weird and uncomfortable situation. I think a few things are going on here. I mean, one one is, I think I mean I, I agree with your sentiment, your your realism, if you like, about uh, reasonable expectations terms of competence, integrity, performance of politicians. But I do wonder if this is in some way quite a distinctive Australian perspective because it's always struck me that Australians have very low expectations from politicians. We're rather cynical. I mean, there's there's no esteem attached to our highest officers like Prime Minister. I mean, we call the guy ScoMo. We call Julia Gillard <laughs> Julia. And, yeah. you know... The moment you're out of office, you're just a citizen, you know, no one calls you. You don't get called prime minister for the rest of your life. There's no, right, right. there's a kind of strange leveling. And I think if our politicians do something good, um, a lot of Australians are surprised because I think they have, I think, I think, I don't think this is always a virtue, mind you. I think there's a sting in the tail here because I, I think we can, we can sometimes have too low expectations of our, politicians and and sometimes when they make the most minor indiscretion we we tend to crucify them literally in australia i think i think there i think there's certainly an element like that in america but there is that kind of messianism on both sides of american politics where there's a there's a lot of high ideals and high visions dreams attached to american politics and i think that's both the virtue and also advice, and it can lead to unrealistic kind of messianic um, expectations in that context. I mean, I'm not sure you could describe any prime minister as ever reaching the status of messianic figure in Australian pop, uh, no. politics. The most you can aspire to is sort of, you know, above 50% in the polls. That's like... <laughs> It's like a big, big <laughs> nod, a big tick in your favor. Right, right. If you're doing that, you know, grab yourself a beer and slap yourself on on the back. The other thing that I think is going on is we, this is a particularly evangelical thing here. I think uh, evangelicals tend to have quite a pessimistic anthropology, do they not? There's this kind mm. of Calvinist yeah. streak where, you know, we're all broken, we're all, we're all sinners, and whilst we can be remade to some extent through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. I, I think evangelicals tend to have a pessimistic out, outlook. They, they sort of see great sin everywhere. And I think this particularly feeds in to a certain evangelical mindset in the US. This is the, the sort of Flight 93 Michael Anton mm. catastrophization of American politics where, you know, literally every political battle is all political combat occurs on the precipice of a cliff and one misstep and you fall off it and it's all all over i don't i don't think that's a feature of australian evangelicalism maybe it ties into that sort of more low-key cynicism because you're pleasantly surprised if something decent happens in in politics whereas in america possibly because it's supposed to mean something it's supposed to be about something yeah. higher than just, you know, who gets what, when and how, you know, the, perceived, the sort right. of dry 
impersonal proceduralist thing. It's about values and high ideals. But it seems to me reading the the rhetoric there, and I think this does come out strongly in, in the, shall we say, the more enthusiastic evangelical support for Trump. And let's let's be honest, there are some who not only defend him. I mean, he's been thoroughly embraced by some segments of the evangelical church over there. And I, I think it is fear and anxiety that drives that. I mean, they, they genuinely think Trump is saving not yeah. only the evangelical movement, but the American Republic from from literal um, existential threat from yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the other radical s- Marxist yeah. left, you know. Yeah. So on the what, there's an there's an interesting group though in like in this discussion there's an interesting group called Never Trumpers, the David French types, who you know I know, I know some of these people they they've said they will never ever vote for Trump. They didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I'm guessing that they won't vote for Trump in 2020. So they're not in the group like the Ben Shapiro's who said they wouldn't vote for Trump in 2016 and now Shapiro's come out and said, I will. There's a sort of pragmatic pragmatism there. But these guys are like in principle opposed to voting for someone like Donald Trump and for Donald Trump himself. Um, that's something I, I guess I don't quite understand because as, in a way this has nothing to do with Trump in one sense, I think this has more to do with the fact that I don't know whether they're like I think they would have to be an absolutely deplorable candidate, like like truly deplorable and obviously and obviously sinister and you know really like really deeply problematic for, for you to be on the same political page as someone and yet still say I'm not going to vote for them because of their uh, of of their character and because I think they're going to destroy the political culture or something like that. I mean, I can I guess I can imagine those reasons now that I like now that I sort of think about them for, while I'm talking. But Simon, I, Simon, but, let, let me put the David French argument too because because I think actually I think actually this is the most he he kind of hints I'll I'll make it my own, but he kind of uh, opens a path towards what I think is the best specifically evangelical <coughs> argument against the evangelical embrace of Trump. David French is a prominent evangelical, so, I mean, there's never Trumpers or a dime a dozen. But what is interesting about David French is his opposition to Trump is a kind of principled evangelical opposition that has some kind of political theology behind it. Now, his, his argument... I want you to tell me what you think of this, Simon, whether yeah. this would ease your conscience or may- maybe stop you walking into the booth with the peg on the nose. Yeah, sure. Or make you do a bit of self-flagellation at least. Yeah, um, yeah. The the uh, the argument is this, that the first part is it's rank hypocrisy because evangelicals led the charge against Bill Clinton's immorality. They were the ones that made character central yeah, yeah anyone who knows anything about evangelicalism the, this position actually is the natural evangelical position not not the new position that says actually character no absolutely matter. you know the eric metaxas thing trump's osiris he's he's saving the republic from yeah i find all that absolutely bizarre yeah i totally agree so yeah. uh i mean well listen, listen to uh, this one george bush george bush right he yeah. drank he did it he got charged for drink driving when he was very young, yeah, I know. And when that know. came out, evangelicals like fled, fled from voting for him. Like one million or something didn't vote for him. I've, I've read that as well. Extraordinary. 
That was that was the good old days, Simon. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. <laughs> milder times, milder times. Now that that's just the premise, not the conclusion. So so French notes that what we've seen actually is a very profound shift, really, in the theological argument, where a lot of evangelicals, I mean, and I mean a lot, have suddenly gone from making character central, which makes a lot of sense because character, the evangelicalism I grew up in, I, I was raised in an environment where the, your personal integrity, your personal morality, the way you treated people, the way you spoke to people, the way you comported yourself was central to what it meant to be a Christian. So this, 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 this uh, prior evangelical position really makes perfect sense, but there's been a complete flip. Now, his argument is that this hypocrisy is going to do long-term damage to the evangelical church in America because everyone in America, particularly the growing secular America, sees this hypocrisy for what it is. And so the, the question, this is the argument, and this is probably as I was reflecting on this, the main reason why I probably wouldn't have been able to bring myself to vote for Trump is that I, I do think there's a, a grave risk that in 20 years' time downstream, we'll see that the temporary benefits from the embrace and perhaps yeah. even yeah. the genuine goods for the Republic, not look through a theological prism, yeah, yeah. will actually do an unmitigated disaster for the church whether it's because it just drives millennials away from the church of their parents because they don't want to have nothing to do with it whether it's the theological distortions that i i think it raises and just let me give you one illustration of of a potential risk i see mm, mm. i mean let's face it and the the evangelical embrace it is possibly symptomatic of a kind of moral decadence and decline within segments of evangelical yeah i think that's possible christianity and i I stress segments because there there are some very very fine evangelicals in america they're some of the best people you will meet on the earth very principled the nicest people the most generous people the uh, kind of people that america needs more of so i'm i don't want to overgeneralize here but the you know we've seen some spectacular falls from Grace, I think uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. comes to mind. Oh, yeah. Where we've seen gross immorality, the kind of immorality that Trump actually is is known for. But this is far worse in evangelical leaders than it is for Trump because Trump's never pretended to be an evangelical his whole life. So in a way, his indiscretions are more unforgivable. Uh, Sorry, are more... Forgivable. Forgivable. They're more unforgivable when you're a pastor or the head of a theological seminary or whatever. Now, once you ditch character and you embrace Trump and you do the Eric Metaxas route of defending everything he does and and really going in holus bolus, you know, some of these people are so far up Trump, you can only see their toes sticking out. And (laughs) (laughs) sorry, sorry. (laughs) That was a little graphic. I said at the start that that this topic... At least in me brings out the uh, oh no, it's a beautiful image. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Very good. Yeah, Uh, you won't hear that on American TV every day. (laughs) The um, the point is that once you make this moral compromise in the political sphere, 
Who's to say you're not going to start overlooking similar indiscretions amongst your partners? Your pastor's okay, so Pastor X is a bit of a bully, talks about women in a disrespectful way, Mm -hmm. he's had the odd affair, paid off a prostitute, but... Yeah, he's promoting the gospel. He's yeah, and you see he's it. defending the church. He raises a lot of money. This is exactly the same rationalization that is used for Trump. And so, who's to say that these compromises aren't actually going to undermine the very fabric of evangelical Christianity? And I think I, I think that's yeah. a real and present danger. And for that reason, <clears throat> I I wouldn't actually want to be complicit in sure. the undermining of my own church and at the end of the day what's more important the fate of the republic or the fate of your faith you see for david french the faith comes first yeah sure he's a I, real patriot i mean the guy served in yeah, Iraq yeah. or afghanistan or wherever it was but i think there are two sides to evangelical christianity in the u.s there are those for whom god or jesus is their lord and there are those for whom the american republic is in which case the person in the offer in in the white house in some ways is more important than the person they meet in the bible yeah yeah just to put it in the most provocative terms yeah yeah so i i i agree but i i actually agree with again once again i agree with the analysis or at least insofar as you've observed a sort of moral decadence in segments of even and, and again to emphasize it's in segments certain segments of evangelical christianity in america and i think that the support for Trump could be symptomatic of that rather than a leading edge. That would be my only mm-hmm. quick qualm with French. I, I don't think it's a, like a leading edge that's going to um, going to bring about further decline necessarily. I, I would say, but, but, but by the same token, Simon, it's, not gonna, it's hardly going to reverse the decline, is it? Uh, uh, but, well, I, I, I guess I, not that decline in particular, but I think that it may be. I mean, there's, there's, I just think there's pragmatic... There's, I just think there's pragmatic reasons that you, that a that a Christian that an evangelical Christian could say, you know what, this guy is a total. He he's he's not just a he's not just unsavory, but he is openly like openly immoral in his life, and he mm-hmm. is a deplorable individual, and we can't stand him. But you know, he is going to be better for he's going to be, he's going to be better for the church than. Mm-hmm. What Hillary would have, I could just see the. I just see, think the argument works. Yeah. I don't. I just don't know whether I buy the uh, the catastrophic. I don't buy the catastrophic argument on either side, right? I don't yeah. buy the catastrophic argument made by someone like Michael Anton in the Flight ninety three argument, where if you don't vote for him, it's going to be catastrophic. I also don't vote buy into the catastrophic argument that I, I'm going to calling it catastrophic from French. I don't necessarily think that's what he's. He's not being a catastrophist, but I think he's probably overdoing it a bit. I don't see these two things connecting as closely yeah, as think, what he does. I think it's symptomatic. Uh, I think it's symptomatic of a rock yeah, that yeah. already exists, and so I'm not convinced that that's a great reason for not, not voting. I think that's a very fair point, for Trump. And I, and I do want to just expand on that. But for those who are wondering why we keep mentioning this Flight 93 mm. <laughs> essay by Michael Anton, just for those to spare people the need to read it, uh, this was a a famous inf- essay that had a real splash written in 2016 before the 2016 election. And he used the metaphor of Flight 93, which of course was the fourth flight hijacked by Al-Qaeda operatives on 9-11. And the passengers on that hijacked plane were informed by others that three other planes had crashed into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. And so they 
heroically charge the cockpit, and whether by design or just as a consequence of the struggle, they brought the flight down, undoubtedly saving many more lives because it was probably destined for the White House or the Capitol building. So Michael Anton's argument is the 2016 election was a Flight 93 situation where the hijackers were Hillary Clinton and Trump is the guy that brings the plane down. And what's fascinating about that article is it concedes that Trump's going to do some damage. There are going to be some victims. Yeah. There's going to be collateral damage. People are going to die. But the argument is <clears throat> whatever bad comes out of Trump, it's going to spare many more lives that will come from Hillary Clinton. But, of course, this gets me to the point I want to expand on. I mean, or the struggle we're having, Simon, and this is, I think, is indicative in the fact that we can basically have, share the same analysis because we see the same yep. facts. You know, yep. I mean, Trump's yep. moral character is not a mystery. It's, no. it's hanging out there in all its ugly glory. And we, we know what he's done in office. We know what he, he said in the campaign. We all heard the Access Hollywood tape. Mm. The, um, but the thing is it, that those facts, because they're so contradictory and we're weighing up competing goods here, so you have to make judgments about potential threats from, say, a Clinton or a Biden, potential goods from a Trump, but also potential um, uh, ills, because I think even a lot of Trump supporters acknowledge, you know, he, he breaks some crap too. There was a, there was a certain um, misformed metaphor I embarked on in our first episode uh, in relation to this, mm. Simon, it involves mm. an elephant in a china shop. The That's point right. is, you know, <laughs> he's going to break some crap and he has broken some yeah. Some crap. But you know what this brings me to is that at the end of the day, all these all these decisions are based on suppositions, right? No yeah, one yeah. can know by definition what the political future is. And the reason one person can think like a Michael Anton that that uh, you know, Hillary Clinton is more or less the Antichrist in America is literally on a path to imminent doom mm. without yeah. course correction. And then Another person like David French, I've got no idea who he voted for in 2016, but there are, there are, I mean, set aside David French, there are evangelicals who brought themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton and marking the very first vote in their entire lives, adult lives for a, a uh, that's right, a Democrat. The reason yeah, they yeah. can come to these different views is neither of them really knows how benign and malign. Hillary Clinton's going to be. And the fact is, we'll never know because the, the entire thing's moot. She didn't yeah. win the election. Similarly... Well, she, well, we know she didn't win the election. I'm not sure that she's convinced about that, but, you know, we can... <laughs> well, well, yeah. yeah I mean, what, what, politician, what, what, what politician is not robbed when they lose <laughs> an election? Or, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean a, a certain... Um, uh, James Comey didn't help, of course, but yeah, 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 true. But but then, by the same token, if she, if she bloody conducted her business on the State Department server, then there would have been no James Comey moment. Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, there there is that little fact, problematic yeah. fact for um, Hillary. But at the end of the day, the point is the reason you can have these wildly divergent views of the Democratic opposition and these wildly divergent views, even from evangelicals about Trump, is that. We're all guessing, so we there. There are contested right. facts here, and we're we're trying to infer possible futures, even if we don't realize we're doing this. But this is what we do: we infer possible futures, future goods, 
and future evils from both candidates. And people weight these different goods differently. So for me, as an evangelical Christian or pseudo-evangelical Christian or um, uh, to, to use the progressive lingo, you know, evangelical adjacent Christian uh, in 2020, I, I see, for me, I weight heavily the potential ills to the integrity of evangelical theology and morality, bearing in mind that we, if we accept the evangelical proposition, which I do, which is that we are in a serious cultural decline, mm. a serious sure. decline of morality, and this has serious social consequences. Well, if evangelicals start compromising, if all the Christians and the religious people start compromising, uh, then in what way, shape, or form does that help address the problem? Sure, Trump fires fights fire with fire, and he's made some Supreme Court judgments. Although I find it hard to believe he hasn't made any judgments. Marco... He's appointed, he's appointed sorry, some sorry. justices. He's well, appointed well, some justices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I do find it hard, hard to believe that a, any other Republican candidate would have appointed qualitatively different Supreme Court justices. Sure. But setting that setting that aside, I weight that what I see is a a, a very real and present corrupting danger in the evangelical brace that's going to that's going to have um, real blowback to use a, a an illustrious CIA term coined after Afghanistan the fiasco in Afghanistan of supporting the jihad yeah yeah uh, for evangelicals now obviously if you're not an evangelical or even if you're an evangelical has a who thinks the real threat is the left then you're you're going to downplay any potential yeah, side exactly. effects for exactly. evangelicalism. And it, this is why, for me, I don't get particularly excited about or particularly judgmental about people's views here. I think, I think people can come to, reasonable people can come to different conclusions here. And there is a bit of intolerance amongst evangelicals on this topic, it seems to me, in the US. But I, I can respect a David French. I, I think Eric Metaxas's arguments are poultry but i but i i get it i can respect his view i don't doubt his yeah his faith or his um personal integrity i don't doubt that he's being sincere uh sincere and i think evangelicals can land on this one differently and even largely agree on the character that's right of trump and i guess this is where i am getting into the abstract intellectual because i'm suggesting that all of these judgments are based on suppositions mm. and possible futures about which, by definition, none of us can know. Yeah, we don't. We don't know, and so we're basically trying to make a pragmatic decision about something that we don't. Yeah, we don't know about, and we don't know what the outcome is. Is this something? I mean, this is this is what this will lead us into territory, which, um, you know, which which I think would be interesting to potentially take up in another episode, but. I, I do I do wonder about the theological underpinnings of some of this. So we've talked about the um, potential theological and moral decline of of the evangelical church. But do you think that there's a a, a sort of a I don't know like a um, a bit of a distorted political theology underlying the hysterical support for Trump in some quarters? And I mean I I, I would argue that that. A good, a decent political theology could allow you to vote either way, because I think that that's 
it's like I'm like you. I think it's reasonable to vote either way if you don't see it as satanic or messianic in in either case. You're sort of not you're not going to either extreme. You just see it as a sort of, sort of this is real world politics. We're living in a world that's imperfect. Jesus is going to come back eventually. And so here we are wrestling with stuff that we can't we can't really resolve until that happens. And so let's mm-hmm. do our best. And there is a political theology that you can articulate about that. You know, there's a number of political theologies that you could articulate around that, that sort of pragmatic view. But I mean, isn't is there's there is a sort of I think there are some some theological distortions underpinning the more frothing at the mouth support of Trump. But does that does this point to a, a deficiency in evangelical political theology? I I think it actually does. So I might disagree with you here, but if I can be convincing, you might come around to my position or you might disabuse me of of mine. I mean, <laughs> hearing you talk there in a, in a in a in a really flashing your evangelical membership card prominently as far as I'm concerned. It reminds me of Johannes B. Metz, who was a German Catholic theologian and really one of the uh, one of several leading Germans that really kick-started Christian political theology as a sort of subdiscipline of theology in the late 60s and early 70s. He, he thought this type of Protestant Christianity, he thought it had far too... He thought, it, he thought it definitely had a deficient theology and he, he came up with this kind of analogy. He thought these evangelicals, are, you know, expect the world to end and they're kind of just sitting in the waiting room as the ship's sinking, waiting for it to sink so that they can be yeah, raised yeah. Yeah. to glory. The reason I say, I would make this distinction, Simon. I, th- I think the best arguments for Trump supporting evangelicals are political, not theological. That is, it goes to the kind of calculations I was talking no, about. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Now, that's where there's a deficient political theology, right? Is that it's this, over-realized, this is, this is, theologically overrealized, this support of well, Trump. This is, this is what I think is the theological weakness in the edifice here. And it's more to do with the implications because, let's be honest, I haven't heard. When I hear people like Eric Metaxas and others defend Trump and defend Christian support for Trump, I've got to confess, I hear a lot of political arguments. I don't hear a lot of theological No, I arguments. agree. So I agree. it's even hard to assess. But this is, this is the flaw in what I take to be the implicit theological argument. And it's twofold. One, it seems to ascribe an importance to secular politics that I do not find in the Bible, as yes. I read from Genesis to yes. Revelation, quite frankly. Yes. I agree. And yep. uh, for those who are listening at home or curious onlookers, the term politics and political doesn't occur in the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek of the Old and New Testaments. It's not, I mean, of course, politics including secular politics, is interwoven into the narrative and story. And there is some teaching here and there, you know, Romans 13, 1 to 7, there's 2 Peter. Uh, and on and on it goes, but it's not a political treatise. It's not Hobbes's Leviathan or Jean-Jacques Rousseau's um, Social Contract. What's the name of his Social, con- Social, Social Contract. contract. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a forgettable text, obviously. Oh, yes, very uh, much so. Yeah. So 
I think it's what a, um, a political scientist with an unpronounceable Polish name in America. I'm about to, actually, I meant to quote him in a book I'm writing today and I, I forgot. So it's <laughs> a mental note. Mm. But he talks about what he calls inflationary exegetical strategies that evangelicals are particularly prone to when it comes to political theology, which is to say they're, they're predisposed to find more politics in their theology than is than can actually be supported <laughs> by the text of Oh, I think this is exactly right. This is exactly and right. And so you get, you know, if if, um, if the argument, if the biblical slash theological argument for support for Trump is that he's a Cyrus, I mean, come on, is that is that really... Does that qualify as a political theology to just make an allusion to one mm. character that appears in in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is it it screams to me of an immense lack of faith because what are the evangelicals? What are, what are the Flight ninety three election evangelicals really saying? To me, they're saying God has abandoned us. The whole yeah, society is going right. to poo. We're doomed unless we take matters into our own hands. Now, okay, there's there's another segment that, that there's the kind of um, uh, Billy Graham's son, his first name escapes me. Franklin. Yeah, Franklin there's, there's the whole kind of prophetic view of Trump that God has placed in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, I guess he would say, well, this is God intervening into mm. history. Uh, I mean, the problem with the seeing God's intervention in history in real time is, I mean, how do you know you're not just self-justifying your own positions? Because if if God can raise up uh, a man like Trump, a reprobate, to use a good Calvinist term, Simon, which yeah, um, yeah. is sure good. to arouse you. It's, it's a very, very uh, good term. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, Pres- Presbyterian and yeah, that's right. That's right. And all that. But... Yeah. Um, if God can raise up a reprobate like um, Trump to do his work, I mean, how do you know he wouldn't work through a Hillary Clinton? I mean, there's exactly. this profound lack of faith that, A, if the wrong human occupies the office, oh, boy, God's hands are tied. He can do nothing. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's got to sit by and watch his, his church go down the gurgler and and the nation. And then, so I, I, I kind of... Thing. It's also, it perplexes me that American evangelicals who live in the land of not one but two great awakenings yeah. have such little faith that anything can reverse the the kind of trends. I mean, the thing you've got to learn about trend analysis is just because you can see a line in a graph sort of, let's say, declining in this case over 50 years, doesn't mean it just continues for the next 50 years no, without deviating. I, I mean, the, the yeah. trends are trend until it, it stops and moves. I, I, and I would, I mean, I'm as a as someone who's interested in history, I I would totally agree that there's no there's no discernible there's no discernible pattern to history in 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 the sense that we can tell what's going to come next in all mm. in all cases. It's just simply not the case. The, the other the other thing I wonder. This is really helpful analysis. I think the the other thing I wonder is is whether. Uh, the evangelical political theology is is um, so. I think I think I said earlier that it's it sort of over over realizes mm. the theological in in politics, and so it takes um, 
it takes political events as the as sort of redemptive events too. Like it mixes. It's very very much the case yep. in the in yep. the US that redemption, spiritual redemption, and politics are t- mixed up together. Um, and I think that there is a level of this occurring in Australia too, insofar as Christians get very culture warish here, and so those who are really getting kind of involved in culture war type. Um, Toing and froing uh, are probably more attached to this kind of political theology, and I just I, I find it I find it troubling because I don't think it's r- the right view of politics. I think that you know I'm I'm with basically with Augustine, and in City of God he talks about uh, the seculum. You know the, the, this this present age where Jesus has. Uh, risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and basically we're just in a holding pattern. We're waiting until he comes back. And in the meantime, there are real political goods, there are real social goods to be had. Politics has an impact on on Christianity and on the church and on Christians, but it doesn't have a redemptive role. It doesn't have a uh, a, a special place in God's grand plan to bring about you know the redemption of the world um it, it is actually a it's a feature of human life and for augustine it's actually a feature of fallen human life um it's not part of the original creation hmm. i don't know whether i agree with that that's a totally separate question but but i'm just putting that in there because it's actually an important part of his political anthropology which does carry through in protestantism in particular but also in in, in catholicism and so politics then is really relativized it's mm. it's a, it's a, it's it's historically and theologically relati- relativized it's 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 it only can achieve politics can only achieve so much it can only do so much bad it can only do so much good so let's all yeah. just calm our farm and you know get on with the good that we can do vote for who we think is the right person to vote for not vote for the other people sometimes we might have different ideas to each other and that's okay because guess what this is actually not the the main game, and it's not the end game either. It's important. I'm not. I, we, we, this is what, what partly why we have this podcast is to talk about politics. It's important. Politics matters, but it's it's. I I feel like there's a real lack of Augustinianism, if you will, in evangelical political theology today, and I think this is evident in the histrionic yeah. rhetoric surrounding. Uh, the current president, and also even just even surrounding some culture wars, uh, that, might, that well. might have something to do with a problem in much, not all certainly, but much evangelical theology, which is that theology, uh, Simon, really starts in the early 16th century for a lot of evangelicals. Well, it so. does, and for and for a lot of others, it starts in the 1960s. I think Billy Graham might have founded the church. Perhaps I'm not sure. Well, but, yeah, yeah, and that's with the other problem. To our Catholic brothers and sisters. You know, it's all downhill from the 16th century. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, and, and to be fair, I mean, you know, we're identifying some of the pathologies of this reformed tradition. You know, something was lost in, in, in the correction. What they, there was a bit of baby thrown out in the, in the, uh, yeah, sure, sure. If you like, you know, an arm and maybe a leg and, a, and an eye or something. But, um, you know, as a political theologian, if I may be so bold, Simon, you know, mm. I, I, there's a simple motto I live by that I remind myself all the day, 
every day because I spend most of my time actually thinking about politics much more than theology. This is why I describe myself as a pseudo theologian, more of more as a Christian political thinker really. But formerly I work in this this strange incoherent discipline called political theology. But there is a point here I'm I'm getting to. My my motto is that there's no salvation in politics. That's what I remind myself because that that's really the key. Yeah. Theopolitical point. Never mistake. This goes to your point about the intertwining or the conflating of redemption, and certainly redemptive historical acts and political action, and and particularly partisan and ideological politics. So there's redemption through one ideology, one party, one candidate, and whatever the opposite of redemption is. Um, damnation. But to your point again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> damnation. I like it. <laughs> Purgatory. But yeah. the, the, and to your Augustinian point, and Augustine really did understand this masterfully, although you can find this in Jeremiah 29.7, if I've got the verse mm. right, about the Israelites seeking their welfare and contributing to the welfare of Babylon because... In Babylon's welfare, they find their wealth. Welfare. Yeah, and you guys are so going to be stuck here for a while. You guys are going to be stuck yeah. here for a while. So, the so point why is, don't you dig in and do some good kind yeah. of thing? So the the recognition that there's no redemption in politics doesn't absolve us of concern, interest, and a need to engage in the political. Because to your Augustinian point, our earthly welfare is very much tied up <laughs> in what happens yeah. in the political domain um if you're a, a parent or you have any kind of connections in the world that you care about which most people do christian or or otherwise then you care about the state of the polity you're in you know it's an unhappy place if you descend into yeah disorder and a a um collapsed state but it but I do think, Simon, and I might make this my last point and then let you yeah. wrap this puppy up. But I, just to be fair, let's just get a bit of balance here because I spent a lot of time looking at uh, the way Christian theology shapes different political views. This, this same, if you like, distorted political theology, or really I think, I think you nailed it with the idea of a deficiency, this failure to proper properly work out the relationship between politics and theology to maintain the proper balance, integration and relationship. I see also replicated on the left, and this is very interesting. They, to me, although they're on the totally other side of the political debate and on many policy issues, they show the same, by virtue of implication, lack of faith in God. There's this idea that if we don't get off our behind and address every injustice in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And we're doomed too. So somehow God doesn't care about uh, justice or again, there's a similar strange sense that is abandoned the world. That's just the two sides. <laughs> kind making of making the same mistake. That's right. Yeah. It, there, there's a, a, and, and really this profound lack of faith points to a crisis in political theology, or maybe it's a crisis based on the lack of a rigorous political theology full stop because the left also, I think, elevate the importance of politics well beyond 
that captured the the proper balance captured in my little motto that there's no redemption in politics. I think they they seem to be finding just they seem to be in in pursuit of the same redemption through politics. It's just the redemption comes in a different flavor. So for them, it's social justice and it's addressing inequality, gender inequality, prejudice, racism, or the like. And I, I don't mean to suggest for a second that these aren't real issues and that they're not real injustices, but the kind of uh, onerous and sort of sometimes unhealthy drive sort of screams to me that these people are trying to find their redemption in politics, just the way certain conservative evangelicals are trying to find it through the opposite side of the political contest. And it all, all, the, all these roads lead to Rome, and the Rome in this situation, in my view, is just the lack, really, of any kind of well-thought-out political theology that can put this thing, politics, in its proper theological context. And the reason why that is so challenging is precisely for the fact that the Bible doesn't really offer an unambiguous and clear political theology. It's a work, it's a job, a task that Christians uh, have to undertake. And so really, what is what does this all amount to for me? It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a narcissistic and self-justifying reason for my existence as a political <laughs> theologian. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think that's a really helpful analysis that this deficient there's a, yeah there's a deficiency in there's a deficiency evident in in, in many evangelicals political theology exactly as you said um but the fact of the matter is that even though we recognize this deficiency people i think what we agree on with these evangelicals is that politics matters right Mm -hmm. and that it's still something that we should all work on so you know i was talking just before um about our friends on the right who are involved more into the culture wars and I, I actually think, you know, a lot of the times they're doing helpful things. Like it's not all, it's not all bad. And I don't, I'm not saying that they have deficient political theology all the time. So I don't, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I just think that sometimes those who are caught up in more hysterical uh, political uh, p- political commentary and uh, uh, culture wars activity can can this that can stem from from a deficient political theology. But look, this is probably a good spot to tie up the conversation. Um, It's been a really, I think a really, hopefully this has been a really interesting insight into the the evangelical landscape for those who are, the political landscape for those who are outside of it and for those who are inside of it, cause for uh, reflection and for further consideration. Jonathan, thanks for another stimulating conversation. Simon, I... (laughs) I enjoy it. I apologize for my uh, sometimes flippant and uh, gratuitous remarks. It does occur to me that <clears throat> with a topic like this, I mean, yeah. have kind of flogged this horse almost, or horse almost to the point of death. Yes. Still breathing, I think. But uh, <laughs> maybe we can come back and just you know pummel that horse in its final moments in another episode. <laughs> but uh, yes, I do. I do wonder whether. We've achieved one of two things. That can't be both. Yeah. And, and <laughs> one might be that we've managed to endear and ingratiate ourselves and win the respect of every side of this debate. But there is also the 
risk that we have pissed off every single demographic that we have offended everyone (laughs) we'll be back to square one in now we hope you all never listen to us again that's (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but look look um i think we can reassure people that next the podcast the week after this one when you're listening to this we will go into the uncontroversial waters of analyzing the u.s election so Yes. Um, if you found this one a bit too confronting, I'm sure that one will be smooth sailing. It's going to be yeah, absolutely. And thank you to our listeners who we've all we've no doubt offended all of you at some point. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode. We hope that you'll join us again next time on the Political Animals for another discussion about politics, culture, and ideas from a conservative perspective.